explained that although they were doing many things right, they, they kind of lost that intimacy and touch of the presence of Jesus in the midst. And church without the presence, without the intimacy, without the touch, without the anointing of Jesus in the midst, um, it's not something I want to contemplate. It isn't really. It becomes very humanly based and very hard work. But when he is present, when he is amongst, when he's inspiring, uh, it's, it is heaven on earth. So he, he, he calls the Ephesians church, um, he holds the seven stars, he walks amongst the seven lampstands. Uh, to the church at Smyrna, he is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Why did he speak to Smyrna like that, do you think? He's the first, he's the last, he died, he came to life again. So when you read the book of Smyrna, he says, you're going to be facing death. But I'm the first and the last. Which is why I said to Paul on Friday night when he was talking about discipleship, that it could well lead to, to martyrdom, because I've been reading this. Yeah, so Jesus knows what we're face, facing, and, and, and something of his person, his character, is relevant. So um, the next church, he says, that he holds the sharp, double-edged sword. Why did he say that? Why do you think he would say that? He, what, what does the double-edged sword do in Scripture? It's the word of God from his mouth. What does it do? It separates truth and non-truth. It separates that which is the soul, the flesh, and that which is of the spirit, which is God. And as you read that church, you understand that... Um, they become quite worldly in the way that they were thinking and approaching. And then I could go on. The next church, he says, the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. What do you think he's speaking to them? Eyes like blazing fire. He has the perspective, the gaze to tell the truth from error. He can judge wrong attitudes, wrong disciplines. And then as it goes on, he says to the Philadelphian church that the one who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David, who opens and no one can shut, what he shuts no one can open. So he's able to open doors for churches that are, have a heart for him, they're hungry for him, they're passionate for him. And finally to the Laodicean church, sadly the one we probably know the most about, uh, he says he's the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So he, he, he points to himself. And church, when the Holy Spirit is moving, he always points to Jesus. Always. And I said it last time, he's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's everything God has to say. Everything. Just as he didn't create anything without creating it through him, God doesn't speak without it being through and about his son, Jesus. Hebrews begins these wonderful words. In the, last, in the former times, God, in diverse ways, in many ways, spoke through the mouth of his servants, the prophets, but in his last days, he has spoken us through his son. So that's why Jesus must always be the center of our affection and our attention. And the church is his church. He stands amongst it. He's paid the price for it. Yeah, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians tells us, doesn't it, that uh, he so he, um, that he, he, he laid down that, 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 that he, might, uh, he might wash us with the water of his word, that he has redeemed us to himself. So the letter starts with um, 
something about Jesus. Good place to start, isn't it? He then says, I know. Every church he says, I know. Every time we pray, you could hear God say, I know. I know. I see your heart. I know your heart. I know your mind. I know your attitude. I know where you are. I know you're in tough circumstances. He says to the, uh, is it the church of Smyrna or Pergamon? He said, I know where you are, where Satan dwells. I know what you're facing. I know the experiences you are. I know how tough it is. I know, I know. Yeah? I know. Can we just hear, hear you, what does God say? I know. I know. I know. He's walked there himself. He knows. And then he highlights something about their experiences. He always begins with this affirmation, except in the case of one church, Laodicea, where he uses some pretty um, shocking language around his distaste for lukewarmness. Um, but he can, even in the church, the Laodicea, you can discern his love. He says, those who I love are disciplined. And I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And if you hear my voice, you can open the door. And I'll come in and I'll sup with you and you with me. So that's his heart. He wants to be in the inside of his church, not on the outside. So he then addresses something that he'd like them to change. And it's interesting. He says, I want you to change. I want you to do this. I'm expecting you to respond. Four times he tells the churches of the seven to repent, to turn around. He urges them to repent. He urges them, in one, the case of Laodicea, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear, and eye soles that you can see. And then he beseeches them to listen. Uh, at the bottom there, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each of the seven letters, he says the same thing. He says, if you've got ears to hear then hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, which is a very interesting thing, to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Because who is speaking? Jesus is speaking. And then who is writing? And who is reading out what he wrote? The messenger. And as he reads, who is speaking? The Spirit. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is speaking. John is writing. The messenger or someone is reading. And then the Spirit is speaking. When we read the scripture, the Spirit is speaking. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah? So on Thursday, as we were reading uh, the book of Isaiah, and what a joy that was, it was the Spirit who was speaking to the church. Hallelujah. So we kind of raise our expectation here. And then finally, there's a word to the one who overcomes. And the promise to the overcomer is an aspect from the end of the book, from Revelation, generally as a guide to keep their eyes on him. So here isn't the goal. To the one who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And each of the promises for the overcomer is also relevant to the church. So 
Ephesus was in danger of losing their life because they were taking their eyes off their first love. But Jesus says, I will give you to eat of the tree of life. Praise the Lord. Now I want you to notice in all of that, to him who overcomes, there's no easy promises of a comfort-laden life, is there? He's pointing to himself as the one who overcame, as we see in the, chapter, the fifth chapter. The lamb that was slain has triumphed. And the promise of eternal life is to the one who overcomes. And our overcoming always follows our understanding of his overcoming for us. So our victory, in other words, he's saying to the one that is victorious, I will give the right to, the tree, to eat from the tree of life. Our overcoming, our victory is always in his victory, not in ourselves. So what happened in chapter one, we saw Christ the victor. We saw Christ victorious. He said, I'm, I was dead and I'm alive, and I have in my hands the keys. I have the keys of death and of hell. I have gone and I have overcome. On the cross, the scripture tells us that he uh, overcame the principalities and powers, that he made a public display of them. At the cross, Jesus triumphed. And we stand in his victory. So when Jesus is saying to the one that overcomes, he's not suggesting that they go and do something that he hasn't already done on their behalf. But he's saying to them, that victory is in me. It stands in me. I have done it for you. And the, and the root word of the overcomer is this Greek word Nike. Everyone come across the word Nike before? It means victory, doesn't it? Yeah? Do you know that? No, no, no. It means victory. Somebody uses it as a brand. But the word is victory or triumph. You need to remember that because I'm going to ask you something a little bit later. The word Nike, uh, prevail, subdue, to carry off the victory, to come off victorious, to prevail, to subdue. So he's saying to the one who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So that's quite a big thing to say, isn't it, to the one who overcomes. I just want to spend a little bit longer on this overcoming. Oh, I forgot to tell you where the seven churches were. Uh, just as a point, in case I don't mention it, the order of the churches goes in clockwise from Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. And there's a road, if you like, that, that sort of connects them. And he addresses the same letter, if you like, gets carried to all the seven churches, the whole revelation of Jesus Christ, and there is Patmos. So, okay, I didn't put this up, but I should have done, got too excited. So, who is it that overcomes? John writes in his epistle, he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He that trusts that Jesus is the Son of God. He that relies on that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the one who overcomes. That's the one who has the victory. The one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The same epistle, he said, everyone born of God overcomes the world. There's power in the work of God in your life by the Spirit of God. It, it has to be a birth of God, a rebirth of God. 
This is the victory that overcomes the world, he says, even our faith. It's faith in the victory that Christ has won. He defeated and disarmed the enemy. Now, as we read Revelation, we see there is a day when our enemy will be bound. He's not bound at the moment. He is defeated, but he's not bound. He's lost, but he's not bound. There will come a day when he is bound. And there will come a day when he is destroyed in the lake of fire. But that day isn't yet. But that day is coming. But what has happened is his defeat. What has happened is Jesus Christ overcame our enemy. And he's called us to follow him in his victory, in this difficult, present evil age. And the way that we have the victory is through faith in the Son of God who was victorious for us. And it's an ongoing work, following the one who has overcome. It's the only safe place to be in victory, is to be in the one that's overcome, to be in Jesus. That's why we should proclaim Jesus. That's why we love that song, I Sing Jesus. And these letters to the churches, they show us how to walk in that victory. And also they show us how not to walk, don't they? And uh, Paul writes to the uh, Romans and says, In all these things, we are more than overcomers. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. And the convincement that he had is that nothing could separate him from the love of God. That's the source, if you like, of our victory, is knowing that God is for us, not against us. So the goal of Jesus speaking to the churches was that they would be overcomers, that they would prevail in difficult circumstances. There was no comfort-laden promises in any of these letters. Now here's the question. If Jesus was speaking directly to us in our church today and the wider church, what would he say? If Jesus, by the Spirit, was speaking directly to our church and maybe the churches in Bristol, following the pattern of these letters, what would he say? What is the first thing he would say? No. Maybe. Obviously, he'd address it to the church. But what is the first thing he would say? Exactly. Thank you, Kate. Do you want to say it again? Something about himself. Say it again. Something about himself. Something about himself. The Holy Spirit always speaks about Jesus. He takes of his and discloses it to us. So church, we need, if you follow the same pattern, he would point firstly to himself, not to us. This is where we go sadly wrong because we think it's all about us. But it's not. It's all about him. It's his church. When I sometimes pray, I say, Lord, I didn't die for this church. I didn't give my life for this church. You did. You did. It's yours. It's you that went to the cross. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. He shall take of mine and disclose to you. He that has an ear to hear, let him listen. So when we sang today, what was the message in our singing about Jesus? It was lovely to hear it, wasn't it? The church is his. He stands amongst her. He holds the stars in his right hand. He speaks to each church, expecting us to act as one. You notice how he addresses the church as if they were one, one body, not 
collection of individuals, but one body. Every member is placed in the church just as he's placed them. It's not to say that he isn't aware of the individual. Of course he is, and he loves us. That wonderful verse in Galatians 2, 20, when Paul says, the Son of God loved me. He loves us as an individual, but he loves us as a church. Christ died for the church. And where there's a practice he's not pleased with, he doesn't attribute that to us all if it's one individual, because you can see that in the letters. Now I'm going to take a risk here, because on the back of the prayer week, I hope we've been listening to the Holy Spirit and praying. What aspect of Jesus would you think he would be revealing to us today? And why? What aspect, maybe of that vision that John had? What aspect of Jesus? Is it the blazing eyes? Is it the face shining? Is it the walking amongst the lampstands? Is it holding in his hand the seven stars? Is it the golden girdle across, speaking of his divinity? Is it the robe, speaking of his purity and his priestly office? Is it his feet in burnished bronze, speaking that he's going to burn up the chaff and everything that is fleshly? What is, what is the Holy Spirit? What part of Jesus is he revealing? And I'm just going to ask Paul to pause the recording now.